right, well, morning, everybody. If you are watching online, it, um, it is March 26th, and there's a major snowstorm outside that we're all fighting to get here. And uh, I know Christy and Tara had a major spiritual experience on the way down from Bountiful as I was driving, and they were uh, praying in the spirit as much as they could. And I think I have some indentations on the door and the seat from them, but I don't know. But I am rebelling and making a statement today. It is yeah. springtime. It is officially spring. I got my spring shirt on, Richard. I, you know, we're in there together. We got to stick together. So, yes, I, I praise God for the snow, but I'm ready for spring. So, all right. Luke 6. If you want to join me there, we'll be springboarding once again off of our the verse we've been looking at the last couple of weeks in our, our study of the apostles, of Jesus calling these men out of sin when they became disciples and they were following John the Baptist, of Jesus calling them to himself as disciples, and then calling these 12 unique men to become apostles. And uh, again, they are important to us because the Bible tells us that uh, in the, the New Jerusalem, their 12 names will be on the 12 foundation stones of the city. We're going to meet them, so it's probably a good idea we know a little bit about them, right? Hopefully. So, and I think God has <clears throat> their example in there in the Bible that we can learn from these 12 men on how to grow in godliness. Because I'm still challenged about the fact that it was probably really about two out of three years of Jesus' ministry that he took these 12 ragtag men from different backgrounds and sources and, and basically very common. And in two short years, he transformed them to preachers and the very foundation of the church as we know it today. So I think to myself in the first practical application, if God can do that with that group of guys, I know he's still working on me, so maybe there's still hope, right? For all of us. So Luke 6, verse 12 to 16, the calling of the, of the apostles again. It says that it was at that time that Jesus went off to the mountain to pray, and he spent the whole night in prayer to God. And when day came, he called his disciples to him, and he chose 12 of them, who he also named as apostles. Simon, who he also named Peter, and Andrew, his brother, and James, and John, and Philip, and Bartholomew, and Matthew, and Thomas, James, the son of Alphaeus, and Simon, who was called the Zealot, Judas, the son of James, and Judas Iscariot, who became a traitor. And we'll stop there. Now, so far, a little, little history. We start off the first Sunday of our study of the apostles, and we looked at their plainness. We keep repeating that, but it's so true. There was nothing special about these guys, right? They were uneducated. They weren't in the, the political high society. They weren't in the financial high society. They, they weren't in the religious high society. They were kind of nobodies. And Jesus calls them together, and what's also amazing is some of these men, as we get into our study, we'll find that they had opposing beliefs spiritually. That uh, one of the guys, we haven't got to him yet, but we'll get to him, was almost like an early form of a Christian terrorist attacking the government uh, and the Roman Empire for not believing in God. And then there were the others that we've looked at so far. And Jesus took these 12 men and he trained them for two years. He corrected them. He changed them. And he made them all come together to be the foundation of the church. And again, they were all different. They were all ordinary. But they were called to do an extraordinary ministry. And again, if God can do that in these 12 plain, common, uneducated, rough-around-the-edges men, 
what can he do with us? That's the exciting part for me of this whole study of what can he do with us? And I'm really excited because he's been working on me for like some 40 years. So, I mean, two years for them, 40 years for me, something big's got to happen, right? Yeah, keep laughing, Tara. It's okay. <laughs> so, so far, we, we've looked at the, the generalization of the apostles of who they were and who they weren't. We looked at Peter for a couple Sundays as he was kind of the, the lead apostle, the leader of the group, and the, the head preacher. Uh, last week, we looked at his brother, Andrew, and how Andrew was kind of one of those guys kind of where? In the shadows, right? Andrew was in the, the key intimate group with Jesus, the, the first four, but he was also kind of left out and was always under the shadow of his brother Peter. Because Peter is always mentioned, Peter's the bold, the brash one. Andrew was the silhouette in the background. But he was also the evangelist, the missionary, that when the apostles saw the masses and the crowds and the needs, Andrew saw individuals. He saw people. And he sought to make relationship with them. And then once he did that, what did he do? He brought them to Jesus. The whole story about Andrew in the New Testament is he was always bringing people to Jesus. And what a cool thing, right? He was that guy behind the scenes. Today we're going to kind of look at another guy that uh, is also kind of under the shadow of people in this first, first four group. And his name is James, the Apostle James. Now what all do you know about James? Oh, you know his name. He wrote a book. He wrote a book, yeah. Two books. Two books. We have very convicting books, short books, right? What else do we know? Well, he ate fish. He was a fisherman, right? His dad's name was Ebony. We don't know much. You know why? The Bible doesn't say much about him. In fact, it says almost nothing. It says less about James than it does about Andrew. And as we looked at last week, the Bible didn't talk about Andrew a whole lot, did it? It says even less about James. Now, we do know a couple things. One, we know he was James, the son of Zebedee. You know why we know that? Because the Bible tells us, real, real common sense, right? So we also know that they had a fishing business. You know, his dad started some fishing business back in the day, and they were helping out, and they must have been doing pretty well because the Bible tells us that in that fishing business, when Jesus calls, these, calls James and John, that they also had hired hands. And you think about it at that time, if you had hired hands, that meant that you were doing enough to hire other people, right? So they were probably doing okay. We also know that uh, James is mentioned uh, before John all the time in the Gospels when, they, when the apostles are listed, probably stating that James may have been the older one, and he also may have kind of been the leader of that band of brothers. We also know this, that James sits not only in the, in the shadow of Peter, the lead apostle, when they're, they're mentioned, because there's always Peter, James, and John, right? But we also know this, this cute, unique little fact, James is almost, or is like never mentioned by himself solo. James is always mentioned with who? John. It's never, well, James did this and James did that. It's always James and John, James and John, James and John. Now, put that in perspective again. I mean, some of us like to be around people and some of us don't. But what would it be like if you didn't get to have your own personality that whenever your name was mentioned, it was always Christine Tara, Christine Tara, Christine Tara, right? You never got to be an individual. You were always with somebody else. We also know... Um, 
that James is mentioned in that intimate three with Jesus. Remember, he was the, one of the first to come to salvation in Christ. Peter, Andrew, who? James and John. He was in that intimate group, but he is also in that intimate group with Peter, James, and John, that triune group that were at the transfiguration of Jesus. Uh, they were always with him in those special moments where Andrew was, again, out probably just trying to meet people and bring them to the Lord, right? I always kind of picture this in a weird way that here's Peter, James, and John with the big events with Jesus, and they're like, where's Andrew? And they're like, well, he's trying to figure out where we are. We forgot to tell him where we're going, but he's bringing someone to us. So, um, so we have all this fun stuff about James. Now, we get to the fun part about James. If you look in Mark chapter 3, verse 17, you'll find that like Simon, who became Peter, Jesus gave these two boys another name. And the name he gave them, if I can pronounce it correctly, is Boanerges. I always pronounce it differently, but it's Boanerges. And it means, do you know what it means? Sons of Thunder. Thunder. It sounds like a WWF <laughs> tag team group, doesn't it? And introducing the Sons of Thunder. Well, think about that for a minute. If you are tagged a son of thunder, <laughs> what does that say about you? Powerful. Powerful, bold, brash. I mean, you're not like Andrew sitting in the background and doing stuff behind the scenes. I mean, when you step out, people notice, right? You are a son of thunder. Everybody knows that even before you see the lightning, when there's a massive storm, what do you hear first before the lightning ever appears? Boom! You hear the thunder, right? And if you're right within a mile of the storm, it is massive and loud. And I think that's where we get James and John, that Jesus says, boys, you are sons of thunder. And that statement says a lot of things, right? It's kind of like the Old Testament guy, Jehu who is, remember the prophet Jehu, he was the one that said, come and see my zeal for the Lord. And he was the one who uh, uprooted the house of Ahab and tore down all the Baal worshipers. Jehu wasn't the guy sitting in the background bringing people to Jesus. He's like, hey, we're going to serve the Lord and we're going to tear down all the idols in the land. I mean, he was out there. You noticed him. You may have been in church worshiping Moloch of Baal, and here comes Jehu, and he's knocking your statues down, right? He's like, I don't care what you think. I'm taking it down because it doesn't serve the Lord. So here's my question. While Andrew is bringing people to Jesus, James is almost driving them away because he's so bold and so brash. He's a son of thunder. Why in the world would Jesus pick a son of thunder to be in his group? I mean, this guy is almost louder than Peter from what the Bible tells us. It just doesn't tell us a lot about him. But he was the one doing stuff and being loud, being brash, kind of running people away. I mean, he was one of those guys that stepped in, and you know they're in the room before you get there because you can hear their voice, and you're like, oh, my gosh, we've got to put up with him again. Why is he even here? He just he rubs people raw. He gets on their edge, right? You know those people? Don't say it's your pastor. I'll pray for you if you do, but don't say that. But that's who James was. He's got Andrew, a nice kind of quiet guy. He's got Peter, who's always kind of fumbling and making mistakes, but he's trying to serve the Lord. And then you have this brash guy in the church that's almost driving people away. 
why would God pick him? Well, here's my take on it. I think God likes to work on people that are projects. They're rough. They got some good raw materials in them, but they need some work, right? And in that process of change and maturation spiritually, God changes them. Application for you and I. Anyone in this room or listening to this a little rough around the edges in some points in your life? Any of you a little too vocal when you should be quiet? Maybe your mouth speaks before your brain thinks? You know, you just go and do something and then you're like, oh, maybe I shouldn't have done that. Maybe that wasn't right, you know? Any of you have some rough edges? Maybe like James in the practical application, Jesus loves you because you're a project. Jesus loves projects. That's kind of a crazy thought, right? But the Bible tells us that when God calls us, he doesn't call us over all together and pretty and dusted up, right? And looking good. He calls us when and comes to us when? When we're yet sinners and we're in outright rebellion against him. And it's at that state in our life that Jesus comes in and says, Hey, I want you. Why don't you come follow me? And we're rough around the edges, right? We got some work to do. We got some history. We got some past. And we got some attitude that's not always good, right? That's the kind of people that Jesus likes to call because what Jesus sees is he looks into the heart of those people. It's like the Bible says, he doesn't look at our outward appearance. Where does God look at us? He looks into the depths of our heart. He sees what's really in there and the potential that could be. He sees the reason and the thoughts behind all that emotion and all that, that brashness. That if you study psychology, if someone is that that bold, there's usually a reason for it, right? If somebody is that in your face and just has to speak out and always give their opinion, there's usually a psychological reason behind that. And Jesus sees that in our lives. And he sees beyond that because he knows that he can deal with that and mold that and heal that and redirect us to where we take that boldness and we use it for godliness. We use it for godliness. We need some bold, brash people in a church sometimes to kind of stir things up. I mean, if we were all Andrews, we'd be at a pretty boring little quiet church. But we'd be bringing people to Jesus. But sometimes we need someone to step in and say, hey, are you guys awake? Come on, worship, do something, get up, come on. We also need Jameses in the church to do something very important, which Andrews probably aren't very good at. And that's to drive out and call out the wolves in sheep's clothing that are in the churches. To say, hey, you're not the real deal. What are you doing here? I mean, those people don't leave unless they're called out on the mat, right? They'll sneak and hang around and take advantage of people as much as possible. Here's where the Jameses come in because they have this zeal for the Lord. And it's like, what are you even doing here? You're not, you don't even have salvation. Either you get right with the God or get out of here. Quit messing with God's people. Quit taking advantage of them. Do you see where the Jameses fit into the church? There's a place for them that God makes. So let's take a look at this son of thunder. 
and see what he's like were the few places the Bible does talk about him. Luke 9. Luke 9.51. One of the first times we see James mentioned with who? John. James and John. James and John. James and John. Now, I picture as you're looking at Luke 9 and we're getting there, I kind of picture some of the zeal that James has is because he has seen Jesus have some of the zeal and he relates with it. Remember what happens right before Jesus comes into Galilee and he calls Peter and Andrew, James and John? Right before that, Jesus comes into the city. He comes into the synagogue, the church at the time. He sees the money changers. And what does this Jesus, this meek, mild son of God do? He makes a whip, a cord, and he drives out the money changers. I mean, this is a small town, right? This is where everyone... They didn't have, you know, the daily Jerusalem post out in mass email. People talked about things. When something big happened, everybody talked about it. Don't you think the news about Jesus traveled to where James heard this? And I think James is sitting back going, yeah, Jesus, you take it to him. Get those money changers out of that temple. I've been thinking about that for years. This is God's house. And they're defaming it. I think James saw this in Jesus and almost kind of justified some of his own actions. Because he's like, Jesus took a, a whip and drove him out. He was protecting his father's house. That's cool, right? So now we meet James in Luke chapter 9. And the story, the background is Jesus is heading into Jerusalem. And where they're at in Galilee, they have to go through Samaria. Well, we've all heard about Samaria and the Samaritan woman in the Bible, right? It was one of the Jews' top ten places to visit and vacation, right? They hated Samaria. In fact, we know that a lot of the Jews, they hated the Samaritans so bad that if they had to travel to Jerusalem and go through Samaria, what would they do? They would completely skirt all the way around Samaria so they wouldn't even come close to Samaria. They took the long route just to avoid that. Jesus, on this other hand, I mean, Jesus is pretty much a straight shooter most of the time, right? He's like, we're going straight through. We're going right through Samaria. And I can hear the apostles going, Lord, you sure you want to do that? I mean, it's Samaria. One, they can make that statement because it's like, we don't want to be with those people. And number two, the apostles also knew that if they went through Samaria, there could be a little uproar, right? Because they weren't exactly welcomed as Jews either. Why not? Well, like Esau, remember Esau got mad in the Old Testament, went off and married someone out of the lineage? The Samaritans had gone outside of the Jewish DNA line, the Jewish genetic line, and they married outsiders. And the Jews looked at them and said, you have polluted the family name. You have polluted our lineage, and therefore you are less than. Not only that, the Jews talked about serving Jesus and seeking the Messiah. They had their own place to worship, and the Samaritans also had their own place to worship, which was Mount Gerizim. So they didn't want these Jews coming through saying, hey, the Messiah is coming. We're going to worship him here because... The Samaritans were like, we have Mount Gerizim. That is where we worship. And you guys are all haughty about yourself. We don't want you here. 
and we have our own place to worship. Don't mess with us. Just go away. Jesus says, boys, we're going through Samaria. And the Bible tells us in Luke 9 that um, Jesus sent some messengers going. Because around this time of year coming into the Passover, there were a lot of people traveling through. And at that time, you couldn't jump on Google and make your reservations. They didn't even have an 800 number to call to make reservations. There was no Motel 6 that left the light on for you. You had to go and find a place to stay. So Jesus knew that the place was probably pretty crowded, right? So he sends messengers ahead, and it didn't go well for the messengers. In fact, we don't talk about this a lot, but the reality is when those messengers came back and said, there's no place there, we got to go on, and Jesus has his interaction with the Samaritan woman, there's a good chance that those messengers were probably run out of the city, maybe by rocks, maybe by force, a lot of yelling, a lot of cursing, because they hated each other that much. And these messengers that were with the apostles probably went into the city and said, hey, the Messiah is coming, make way for the Messiah. And the Samaritans are like, we have our own place to worship God. We're good. You just take your little theology and go there and we'll have our little theology here, right? And so they probably ran them out. Now, when they run them out, the messengers come back and they tell Jesus, ain't no place to stay there. We got to keep moving on. And James, with all his zeal for Jesus being the Messiah, the Son of God, the living God, James, when he hears these men come out, what does he say? Oh, Lord, let's just bless and pray for them right now. Let's lay our hands out towards the city of Samaria, Samaria and let's just bless them and pray for them, Lord. Let's just do that. You know, that's what the Bible doesn't say. You know what the Bible says in, in Luke 9.51? James comes and says, Lord, do you want us to command fire to come down from heaven and consume them? Wow. Can you see Andrew sitting there going, dude, what are you doing? We're supposed to be bringing people to Jesus, and you're trying to torture them and burn them up in flames. These people need Jesus too. But James is like, Lord, do you want us, do you want to give us the authority? And right now, Lord, right now, we'll cleanse this place out. We'll, we'll have refiners fire here. We'll wipe them out. We'll just cleanse the earth of these scum. It's like, Lord, give us the ability to call down fire from heaven. Wow. That was one of the apostles that Jesus called to be in his merry little band. Huh. You see a little problem here? I mean, James isn't the most missionary-minded guy in the whole group, is he? He's not the one saying, well, let's get some tracks and go and witness to the Samaritans. Maybe we can get one or two of them to come to the Lord. He's saying what? Burn them up and burn them now. Lord, just give me the ability and I'll, I'll call the fire down. I'll torch them. I'll rid the earth of them. Let's go down to verse 55. And here's what Jesus tells James. Jesus had to confront James like he did Peter a couple times, and not in a very <laughs> pleasing way. It was loving, but it was very direct. Jesus looks at James, and it says, He turned his head, and he rebuked him and said, You do not know what kind of spirit you're of. He'll go on to say, The Son of Man did not come to destroy men's lives, but to what? Save. To save them. 
well, here's James, and James is all fired up because they have basically told the Messiah there's no room for him in their town. And James has this zeal for the Lord that he's like, uh-uh, ain't nobody going to tell my Lord what to do. Ain't nobody going to reject my Lord. Well, here's what I like about James. Isn't it better to have someone that is almost over-righteous and fired up who will not allow any insults to come to Christ than to have someone meek and mild and say, well, you know, I would like to say something because you're kind of mocking God, but I'm going to be quiet. See why we need Jameses in the church? Andrew may have been back there going, yeah, they rejected God. That's kind of not nice, but I don't know what to do. James is like, you don't, you don't reject Jesus. What is wrong with you? And here's the zeal of James. He will not allow his Messiah to be ridiculed, insulted, or rejected. It's like, how dare you mock my God? How dare you take the name of the Lord God in vain? How dare you reject Jesus? We need those people in the church, don't we? We need those fired up people, even if they go overboard sometimes, to be like, don't make fun of God. Don't take his name. Don't put him on a cartoon and ridicule him. This is God. Don't you know that, people? This is the holy, righteous son of the living, the living son of God. This is the one that's going to, you're going to stand in judgment before. Don't make fun of God. That's James. He was rough around the edges. He was bold. He was brash. He, he wanted to bring down fire and consume people. And even though Jesus confronted him and said, James, you don't know what spirit you're of, Jesus could still see in that brash, vocal, outspoken heart of James that there was hope. Well, I hope that gives you hope. Because are there any times that you and I kind of go a little bit overboard and say things that we wish we could take back? Anytime we ever just lash out and do something, it's like, maybe that wasn't a good idea. Anytime we ever come to Jesus and just kind of throw our opinion out there, like, yeah, give me the power to do this. I'm going to torch him. And Jesus is like, ah, uh, 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 got to backstep a little bit. We sometimes, like James, need to have those reins pulled back a little bit, right? I mean, it's not a good example, but sometimes we need that little dog choker collar on us, right? Maybe they even little the, the taser column where you push the button and the dog's like, oh, right? Jesus can look in your heart and my heart with all of our rough edges that we have and say, I see something there that's valuable. I see something there that is worth spending my time with. I see something there behind the shadow of what's ever causing that boldness, that brashness, that lashing out, that anger. I see where we can heal that. And if we can do that and reach the heart of this individual, what a powerhouse for the gospel they could be. What a powerhouse for good they could be. Because they're going to be the one out promoting, right? They're going to be that front figure out there going, come on, man, get on the bandwagon. We got to do this. This is how we serve God. This is, we got to get involved. Jameses are cool. A little loud, 
little rough, sometimes with the wrong attitude, but we need James's. I like the fact that James wouldn't allow any insults on Jesus to be had. He's going to speak out. He's going to speak out. You ever have that point where you're in a place and something happens and they take the Lord's name in vain and you're like, oh, I wish someone was here to say something? Need a James. Where's the next part we see James? Matthew chapter 20. Matthew 20. This is one of the most bizarre incidents in the New Testament with the apostles, I think. <laughs> it just doesn't fit. But Jesus left it in there. It's kind of funny. Matthew 20. James and John. We always hear James and John, right? James and John. James and John. They're sitting there, and, and they're with Jesus, and they've been with him a little while now. And again, not only is James bold and brash, but he, he's extremely ambitious. And James and John are kind of talking, saying, hey... You know, when Jesus sits on his throne in heaven, there's a good chance there's probably going to be what? A throne on his right and a throne on his left. And he's called us as apostles. He obviously sees something in us, right? Well, maybe we could what? We could be the ones to sit on those two thrones on both sides of Jesus. You see the ambition? I mean, I love the ambition, but it's a little steered the wrong way. I mean, they're seeking the glory, the pride. They're, they're seeking the honor of sitting by Jesus, right? So they, I think they've probably tried to kind of hint about Jesus about this, and it just kind of doesn't go anywhere. So do you know what James and John do? Here's for some of you ladies in the room. They go and they get their mommy. I feel for Zebedee. Remember who Zebedee was? That was dad. Well, you've got mom, and I wonder if Jesus called her Mother Thunder with her sons of thunder, right? I think Zebedee had a fishing business on purpose. You know why? I think he needed to get out in the water, away from the house, because he was told a lot of things by Mother Thunder. Here comes Mother Thunder on, on the scene with Jesus, and she walks up to Jesus, and we read this. So the mother of the sons of Zebedee came to Jesus with her sons, bowing down and making a request of him. And Jesus said, what do you want? And she said to him, now this really is not a request when you read this. She says, command that in your kingdom, my sons may sit on your right and your left. Do you hear what she says to Jesus? command. She is telling God what to do. And you'll wonder why Zebedee had a fishing business out in a boat on the lake by himself, right? There's a reason for that, right? It wasn't by accident. Mrs. Mother Thunder was as bold as her sons. Where do you think the boys learned it from? From mom, right? Mom was bold. And Jesus deals with the issue, I think, very lovingly and politely. She's saying, command that in your kingdom, my boys sit on your right and left. And he tells her, it's not my place. I don't get to command who does that. That is my father's decision. And no matter how much you push and how loud you are and how you tell me to command, 
It's not my choice and it's his decision. It's my father's decision. But then Jesus asked something interesting. He says, you don't know what you're asking for, being on my right and my left. But then he says this, are you able to drink the cup that I'm about to drink? You see, he doesn't let the situation go. He doesn't just say, it's not my place to tell you. He goes a little bit further. He says, are you able to drink the cup that I'm about to drink? And what was the cup that Jesus was about to drink? He's going in to be ridiculed and mocked and tortured and beaten and forsaken and betrayed and crucified. That's the cup that Jesus is about to drink. And he looks at the boys, James and John, and he says, are you able to drink the cup that I'm about to drink? Well, in that question, you got your sons of thunder. They're only going to give one answer, aren't they? Yes. Kind of like Peter, Lord, I would even die for you. I'd never forsake you. Here's the sons of thunder going, yes, Lord, we can drink that cup. And what's Jesus say? Okay, I can't guarantee you to sit on my right and my left, but I will let you drink the cup. Practical application number 94. Be careful what you ask for. You may get it, right? If your mouth speaks before your brain sometimes, you put that out there, Realize, God may give you what you want, what you're asking for. You may not realize what you're asking for until much later. The Bible also goes to tell us that this really stirred up some things with the apostles, didn't it? I mean, they're sitting here watching this. Mother Thunder comes in with her two boys, and she's commanding this, and they're like, where do they sit so high? Oh my gosh, we read in verse 24, it says, hearing this, the 10 became indignant with the two. You ever have those people that come in and they just think they're deserving? They are entitled, right? And you're like, who are you? The rest of the 10 apostles became indignant. In other words, they became disgusted with the two boys and yet, the story's not done, right? Yet still, here's the miracle. God is going to make all 12 of these men preachers and gospel messengers. And it tells us right here by the actions that God's not done with them yet. And that's still good news for us. Because in our rawness, our roughness, God's what? Not done with us yet either. And that's a good thing. So Jesus did give James the cup that he asked for and said he could carry, but it wasn't exactly what he asked for. James wanted a crown, and Jesus gave him the cup of his future. James wanted power. Jesus would give him a mission, a ministry, a life of servanthood. James wanted to rule, and Jesus would give him a sword, not to wield, but to be the own instrument of his own execution. Because 14 years later from this point, James would enter the gates of heaven by being killed by a sword. That's the cup that James asked for, and that's the cup that James got. Acts 12 tells us the end of the story. It says there was this guy named Herod, and Herod didn't like Christians very much. In fact, he hated them. He hated the movement of the way that was starting to sprout up around his rule. And it says this in Acts chapter 12, 
It says, And Herod laid hands on some who belonged to the church in order to mistreat them. And it goes on and says in verse 2, And he had James, the brother of John, put to death with the sword. And when he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. James got the cup that he asked for, didn't he? It wasn't quite what he wanted. But there's some interesting things in Acts 12 that we can glean out of this. We know Peter was the leader. He was the main preacher, right? But when it comes and Peter, James, and John are arrested because Herod wants to mistreat them and make an example of them that you shouldn't be a Christian or this is what happens, whom does he kill? He doesn't kill John, and he doesn't kill Peter. Who does he kill with the sword? James. He kills James. Now, if you have three Christians and you're going to kill one, which one are you going to kill? The one that's on fire the most, that's spreading the gospel. The one that's putting it out there, and, and, and they're the holy roller, and they're preaching, they're speaking, they are on fire for God. And they're like, you've got to come to salvation, Herod. You've got We're going to have a, a street witnessing festival. We're going to have Billy Graham come join us. He'll be the third speaker, because I'm going to speak first, and then Peter's going to speak. We're going to do this. James is the one who's killed, which gives us a beautiful picture of the change that God did in him. Because at first, he's rough, right? Jesus is at first saying, you don't know what spirit you're of, James. You need to back off and regroup here a little bit. And here, Acts chapter 12, Jesus has been crucified, risen from the grave. We're in Acts, and James is the one that Herod kills. What does that tell us? That James had gone from being rough around the edges to being a phenomenal man for God. And his zeal for God was now redirected in a right way. He was a powerhouse for the gospel. He was a freight train coming through with the message of Jesus and salvation, and nothing could stop him. So Herod took him out. You see the massive change that Jesus had in James's life? Huge. Or as one of our former presidents would say, huge. James is a changed man now. He's still got that zeal. He's still got that passion. He still loves God with every fiber and cell of his body. But now he's not asking to bring down fire and consume and rid the people of the earth. Now he's saying, you've got to come to Jesus. And Herod's going, I've had enough of you. Take off his head, shut him up, yank him quiet. That's the change that God can have in us. James is a changed man. He's still got those same basic raw materials, but he's no longer seeking personal power, personal fame, personal glory. He's no longer seeking to be on the right or the left of Jesus. He's just out there saying, it's enough to serve God, and I've got to share the message. I've got to get it out there. He's no longer seeking to be noticed, except for the fact that he can draw attention to Jesus by what he's doing. What a change. The Son of Thunder had been mentored by Christ, empowered by the Holy Spirit, shaped by those means into a man of zeal and ambition for God and the kingdom of God, whose strength and intolerance was for a divine purpose and for the protection of the truth, whose sympathies were reserved for those things said that honored God, 
Somewhere along the line of the two years with Jesus, he learned to control his temper, he learned to control his tongue, redirect his zeal, eliminate revenge, and completely lose personal ambition. He was now courageous, zealous. He was no longer insensitive and loveless. He didn't worry about ambition or the passion of man. He had now turned into an instrument of God, for the glory of God. And his strength in what God had done and transformed him into as a man of God was so strong that to stop the church, Herod thought he had to kill him. Wow, what a powerhouse. Herod's looking out and saying, this is the one that's going to go. Gonna go. If we take him out, the church is done. <laughs> Little did Herod know. But that's what Herod thought, which tells us that James was on the forefront of bringing the gospel. And there's something interesting about James, too. James is killed by the sword, right, at Herod's command. There's a story that goes along with James when he was killed. And it goes like this. One historical writer says that when James was sent to death, he was taken to the place of execution by an officer. Remember, they'd always have their Roman guards that would take you off, and you're chained to them, and they would kind of bit or spit on you and beat you and pound you as you're going to your execution says that the one who guarded him, the Roman guard that was with James, became so impressed by his courage on his way to execution that the guard repented of his sin and fell down at the apostles' feet and begged him for a pardon for the part that he played in his forthcoming execution and the rough treatment that he had given to James en route to his execution. The story goes on from the historian says the apostle raised him up and said you were forgiven of your sins it says immediately the officer was transformed and along with James he publicly confessed his surrender to Jesus Christ and he was beheaded alongside with James James suddenly became a little bit more like Andrew didn't he instead of driving people away at the end of his life he was bringing people to Jesus. What do you do with a passionate, zealous, dynamic, strong, ambitious person in the church of God? You pray for them and you pray hard. <laughs> you pray for God to do his miracle in them, like James. Interesting story. Some of you know the name Billy Sunday. He was a famous American evangelist. He was a powerhouse for God. You know that all of his children died in unbelief. Here's this powerhouse for God preaching the gospel in his own family parishes. He missed something, didn't he? Where's the best place to do evangelism? Your own home. James followed Christ and left everything, left his dad with the hired hands and the fishing boat and for two years followed Jesus, allowed Jesus to rebuke him, to confront him, to correct him, to change him, allowed Jesus to temper him and heal him. He became a man burning with passion and enthusiasm for the kingdom of God and for the message of the gospel and the advancement of the church. James was a project. I wonder, as I was putting the sermon together, 
the thoughts that went between the years of Jesus, those two years that Jesus was dealing with James. And James was only one of them. Remember, we still had Peter. We have all the other guys. But you got this powerhouse, the son of thunder out there. And how do you tame the son of thunder? Something only God can do. James was a project, and God made it work. Isn't that cool? We, too, are what? Projects. <laughs> God loves projects. Because he loves to take that raw clay and press it, and stretch it, and pound it, and mold it, and fire it. And when he's done, that rough piece of dirt that was clay, it's beautiful. Beautiful vase that's useful. It's no longer ordinary, it's now extraordinary. That's what God If you kind of step out or speak or want to state things, or maybe you shouldn't, you want to be bold and brash and, you know, you see someone that takes God's name in vain and you just want to turn the car and drive them off the road, there's hope for you in the kingdom of God because God can mold you like he did James. And I'll tell you what, if you're one of those people, God needs you in the church. He needs you in the church desperately. And that's why he chose you to be in the church. Just let him have his way in you. For me, James is the epitome of Proverbs 10, 12, and 1 Peter 4, 8. And it says these words, Love covers a multitude of sins. The love that Jesus had for James covered all the bad parts until he was the man that God wanted him to be. How about you and me? Does God's love cover the multitude of our sins? I think so. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you once again for the example of James in your word, that you actually chose him to be one of the apostles, Lord, as, as rough as he was, as brash, as outspoken as he was, Lord, you had a place for him. As you molded him and changed him, you healed him, you redirected him, and then you made him a foundation of the church as we know it today. With its theology, its gospel message, it's zeal for, for you and serving you and letting no insults come your way. Father, some of us have some tendencies like James. Some of us need a little humbling. We need to be not so ambitious about personal things and entitlement. We just need to have that love redirected towards you and have your love cover the multitude of our sins and our boasting and our pride. God, be with us as we are like James and use us. Make us useful in your kingdom and minister to us that we may glorify you with every breath, every cell, and every fiber of our very being. For your glory, in Jesus' name.